Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by Yamaha. You can check out the amazing YZFR7 at your local Yamaha dealer or of course at yamahamotorsports.com. The YZFR7 is an incredible super sport machine and it's comfortable too. In this week's first segment, editor Don Williams takes the smallest BMW ADV bike on an urban adventure in Los Angeles. The BMW G310GS is a full-size motorcycle. It's got a modest engine, so of course we wonder if it's a little too underpowered and might struggle. Don put it through its paces and gives us his take. In the second segment, Neil Bailey and Kieran Ridley have returned from the Ukraine to Paris where Kieran is based. Kieran is an award-winning photojournalist and, as an accomplished documentarian, he has covered stories as diverse as drug smuggling around the Mexico border, to the devastation of the Australian bushfires, to the tragedy of the Mediterranean migration crisis. Neil and Kieran reminisce about their motorcycle adventure in the Ukraine and their observations and experiences with the incredibly resilient people of Ukraine who have been put through such brutal hardship. From all of us at Motos and Friends, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The YZFR7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZFR3 and the prestigious YZFR1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZFR7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZFR7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZFR7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Yeah, I went down to BMW and was poking around in their fleet and I saw a BMW G310GS 40 years GS edition, which is basically celebrating, actually it turned out to be a year late, but the uh, uh, 40 years of GS motorcycles. And uh, for people who don't know, the BMW G310GS is not anything like a 1250GS. Uh, This is a single cylinder, small motorcycle, made in India, uh, but designed, you know, by BMW. And uh, it's a different kind of motorcycle. And the thing to probably know right away is that it costs 6,200 bucks with the 40 years GS livery on it and a little bit less without it so it's an, an affordable bmw and uh you know so i so got the bike and had it in the garage and my wife uh, is a musician and she was playing a show and she had brought the wrong shoes so she put out the distress call and i grabbed a pair, a pair of shoes that she needed uh, which happened to be alpine stars uh tennis shoes and uh I had to go drive, ride down the freeway for about a half hour to, to the club she was playing at. So I went into the, into the garage and the BMW G310GS 
happens to have the perfect wrap on the back that you can wedge a pair of shoes in, uh, take the uh, shoelaces, tie them on the rack, and away I go. So that was, that was how the, the, the test of the bike began, as a mission of mercy. And so uh, the first thing I got to do on, on the 310GS was uh, ride on the freeway. Now, the motor has the capability of riding on the freeway. It puts out 34 horsepower. So the realistic top speed is 80. Uh, if you have a really long run and you tuck in and you keep the throttle open for a long time, it'll do 90. Uh, you know, so we have open roads out here that are, of course, closed course with police escort uh, that we were able to get it up to 90 miles an hour. But realistically, you're looking at 80. And if you're familiar with the Golden State Freeway in Los Angeles, 80 doesn't always get it done. 80 can mean you better be sitting there on the, the far right lane or this, the two right lanes because there's people going to be going past you a lot faster. So I rode down, stayed a little bit to the right. I mean, normally I'm on a motorcycle. I'm either keeping up with the flow of traffic, going a little faster than it because it is safer to go faster than the flow of traffic than slower. Uh, in this case, I was not necessarily going faster. So I, I stuck to the right, but uh, the bike doesn't buzz too much. Uh, the, the wind uh, is blocked fairly well by the front of the bike. It doesn't have a fairing, but it has like a cowling around the headlight that blocks a good amount of the wind. So it's actually comfortable at 80. You can, you can ride at 80. There's a bit of a buzz that it will eventually get to you, but not bad. So my half hour ride down to uh, give her the shoes was, was not exactly fun, but it was, it was interesting to see how this bike works because as a 310, it really is an urban motorcycle. Obviously, you know, the 1250 GS or the 850 GS, those bikes are designed for you to go across country or around the world. And actually you might even be able to go around the world on the 310, but you'd have to do it slowly. But if you were going to ride, most people that would ride coast to coast in the United States, they're going to be on the freeway or, or fast roads a decent amount of the time. And uh, 310 is just not going to cut it, especially if you loaded it up. So as a freeway bike in the city, you know, we have roads like the Hollywood Freeway in Los Angeles that the speed limit's 55 or the Harbor Freeway. 55 is pretty good. You know, you have, a, you have some kind of little wiggle room where you're a little faster, you can ride a little better. But when you start getting up to 65 mile per hour speed limits and people going 75, 80, 85, 90 sometimes, you kind of have to, you have to pick your battles and stay out of the way and not, not park in the, uh, the carpool lane like I normally went on a motorcycle, but stay, stay out of the way. So, but it will get you there. You know, if you're going just a few exits or you're just going 10 miles or you don't have to do it all the time, bike's perfectly fine on the freeway and, and uh, it's stable. Uh, you know, it's got the 17, 19 uh, wheel combo, but uh, it's still totally stable on, on the road. It's got uh, Metzler Tourance tires. They didn't have problems with the rain grooves. So it was all good. So I got down there and once I'm down, this is in the uh, Echo Park uh, Silver Lake area of Los Angeles, which is a hilly area uh, just to the northwest of downtown LA. And one thing a lot of people don't know is that there's a lot of little secret roads around there. And I'm kind of aware of them and I've been on them on motorcycles. But I thought, oh, I think I'd go look for some places. I'm always looking on Google Satellite for an interesting road or an interesting trail. There are also, there are dirt roads in Los Angeles, like close to downtown LA. You wouldn't think so. You'd think every road is paved, but not every road is paved. And on an adventure bike, that means you can have some fun. And so, uh, so I was poking around. And one of the good things about the 310GS is that it's not threatening to people. 
Uh, I was yeah, up, up near Elysian Park on a little one lane road that eventually turns into a dirt road. And there were some people up there and I wasn't sure where the road went. So I didn't want to get stuck and have to turn around. So I stopped to walk. And some people that live out there, you know, at the end of this road saw me. And uh, after I came back, you know, they were like waving and they were cool. And if I had a louder, you know, more audacious looking motorcycle, you know, if I had like a European 450 dual sport, they might look at me like, ah, what's that guy going to do? Or where's he going? But on this bike, it's, it's much less threatening. It was like, you know, it comes up, it's like, you know, very friendly. And uh, the bike looks, it doesn't have an intimidating look. It has a cool look for a 310. It looks much bigger than a 310, uh, but it doesn't look, you know, threatening in any way. So, uh, so I was able to do some little dirt riding and then I did another, there's another one that I, another little dirt road thing that I had checked out. I've been wanting to do it and I hadn't done it. And to get on it requires a little sidewalk action, <laughs> just kind of fun. So I go up a driveway, drive down a sidewalk around a palm tree and a couple telephone poles down another sidewalk. And then I'm on this dirt road. So I'm riding down the dirt road. And this is uh, again in the Silver Lake area. And all of a sudden I go between these houses, which is cool. And there's all these trees. It's very picturesque. And I'm thinking, oh, I gotta take pictures of this sometime, you know? And then I come out and there's a party blocking the road. So I'm on this GS and there's a party and the people have, they have a stage and there's somebody performing on the stage. I wasn't quite sure what was like a comedian or a guy tying balloons or whatever it was. Somebody was on stage performing. There were a bunch of people with folding chairs. There was a couch. It was completely blocking the road. And which makes sense because it really wouldn't, there wasn't a road that you'd have through traffic on. Because remember, I got to it by going down a sidewalk, you know, between a sidewalk and a fence and a wall. So they were on a sidewalk between a fence and a wall. So I come out and so I see them and I go, well, they're having a party. Looks Christmas, Christmas, a birthday party or something. So I, so I just wave and I like make a, a circular fit in my finger. Like I'll just turn around and go back the way I came. Nope, no problem. So the people are like, no, 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 no. And everybody, everybody gets up with their folding chairs and they make like a path through this crowd for me to ride through. So I'm like, well, okay. So I ride up and then as I get up to them, I stand up on the bike, you know, balance because I'm going through as slowly as I can because I don't want to hit anybody. I don't want to fall over. I don't want any problems. So I'm going through standing up. And as soon as I stand up, everybody's like, oh, like, they thought I was going to do a stunt or wheelie or so. I don't know what they thought I was going to do, but all I was doing was standing up. So I, I go through, avoid this couch that was in the way, you know, I had about a two inch clearance through and somebody else that's a bmw and everybody's like oh so everybody's very excited and so i go go continue on my way wave and everybody's like cheering and stuff so it was pretty funny <laughs> like usually when i go test riding i don't get applause and this was a time when people were applauding my incredible riding skill so uh and that's this is something that you you know i you actually could do it on a, a normal street bike uh, you know, a cruiser, big cruiser, you probably wouldn't want to do it. But in, in any kind of agile bike, it's not too too wide, you could have done this. But, you know, you feel better going down a dirt road. In some places, it was a little sandy and a little uh, bumpy on, on a GS. You know, it meant a dual sport bike would have been good too. But when I got up there on a dual sport bike, it wouldn't have the same look as a GS, an adventure bike. An adventure bike, people seem to intuitively get that there's more to it than like a dirt bike. And they kind of they kind of like it, like, well, this guy's on an adventure. He's gonna go do something. And what a cool guy this guy is. Instead of, oh, this guy's on a dirt bike, he's gonna do wheelies and donuts and cause problems. So uh, 
there's a bit it what you know what motorcycle you're riding really does impact the ride you go on and the people the way you're perceived by other people and how things can can play out so you know so i got to so i went to the crowd i got cheering with me i went down to the end of the dirt road where there was a fence came back the other way and then and exited out and so that was that was pretty fun and then i just rode around downtown la you know and then back home to san fernando valley and that bike is a great city bike i mean you can just you get it gets insanely good mileage and uh you know you just it's got a three gallon tank but it, you know you get over 200 miles out of it and you know you just ride around and you, people are looking you know waving if i need to go up on a sidewalk or up a curb you know to avoid some traffic or to get through somewhere no problem you know it's just super agile the bike weighs just 374 which isn't super light uh, for a 310 that's that's a little heavy you know much heavier than a dual sport 300 would be but it's still totally agile and usable and uh again not intimidating to other people because it's, it's quiet because of the small motor and the big muffler and so you can just you know you can kind of ride it anywhere and ride it however you want you know in la we have these bike lanes that are never used by bicycles but the people who you know in charge want to have this dream of all these people on bicycles in a city with hills and 100 degree days total idiocy of course uh but they're great for motorcycles and the little logo that they use is just like somebody on two wheels so to me policeman ever pulls me out and say hey that was, that was a motorcycle logo there the bike this is the motorcycle lane so anyway nobody ever cares about you riding in it and uh this bike makes it much less obvious that you're you know not on maybe even a pedal bike these days you know electric pedal bike so the uh, 310 gs established itself for me as an amazing urban motorcycle you can, and also you know in silver lake echo park there's some really steep hills i mean they're they're paved roads but they are steep paved roads like 26 degree climbs and you're you're going up you know and and the bike has no problem going up no problem going down no problem making a u-turn when the dead end is just a flat dead end no cul-de-sac you know you just kind of work it around bikes uh, easy to handle Seat height's 33 inches, which for me isn't a problem. I ride regular dirt bikes. So, you know, 33 inches is not short, but it's not super tall. And also the seat's fairly soft. So it, it cushions down, the suspension cushions down a bit. So the effective seat height is, is you know, probably two inches less than, than the 33 that, that it is. And so that was kind of the first part of the test was riding around town, riding on the freeways, riding on these little, you know, hilly roads, checking things out bike is great i mean it's as good a motorcycle as it gets if that's what you're doing it's just it's just for a city motorcycle and you want to have kind of that you know coolness of an adventure bike it's it's a pretty difficult motorcycle to beat so then it's time for me to go get more gse you know and so i go up into the angeles national forest and go on you know legit dirt roads that are uh you know not killer like single track or really hard jeep trails but still like a, a road that you wouldn't be comfortable with in your car you know there's too many rocks too many bumps too many ruts you know if you were in a car you'd probably get stuck uh, a truck might you know a truck a four by four truck probably even a two by two truck would be okay but but tougher you know so tougher than a than just a flat dirt road that you'd be good on pretty much anything but not an excessively difficult kind of thing again you have these uh Metzler Tourant's tires, which are not 
Nazis. You know, they're 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 streety. They're they're they they fall on the street half of the the range from you know pure dirt to pure street tires. So you have to you know keep that in mind. And also, the GS doesn't have you can't switch off the ABS. So on a couple of downhills on the roads, you know, if you get too aggressive with the brakes, which doesn't take isn't too hard to do with those tires and that you know, in, in off-road, you know, then the EBS comes in and you kind of don't have any brakes, so it can be a little exciting. But uh, still, I was able to go for good good road, you know, good rides on roads, miles and miles, having fun. You know, you just got to be a little careful on corners. You know, you kind of lean in, get to a corner, and you're just not sure how much that tire is going to, that front end is going to go before it washes out. Uh, you know, you can spin up the rear wheel pretty easy, and that's fun. There's no traction control because it's 310. And so, you, you know, that's fun, you know, spin up the, the back end when you're coming out of a turn and you want to want to do that. But you just kind of have to be careful of the front end when turning, you know, going into turns and, and braking. Uh, you know, and on the roads up up in the Angeles National Forest, uh, you know, the faster parts, you know, you know, you have a 310. In fact, really everywhere you ride, you're aware that it's a 310. It, it, it's not like this free revving like street bike kind of 310, like maybe a, a Honda CB300R. It's more, you know, torquey. And so when you, if you want to stay ahead of traffic, you've you got to twist the throttle. You can't just, you know, most motorcycles, any kind of effort will put you far ahead of every car. On this one, if you don't, if you just kind of are lazily going away, the cars are still riding your butt. But if you, you know, if you give it good, good gas, do a little, you know, shifting and clutching, you, you can, you can, get daylight between you and the cars pretty easy and, and up in the you know mountains uh at the higher altitude the performance is a little down when you're going up hills you know you're tucking in wide open and you're not necessarily going even 70 up up a hill you know but on the downhills it's fun and it goes good and the handling in the corners is good the tires that aren't that great on this uh dirt are perfectly fine on the street especially given the demands of just a 310 motor and uh, it really works well for sub dual sport riding in the mountains where, you know, if you were gonna ride all the time in the mountains and then on the dirt roads up there, you'd want a dual sport bike. But if you also want a bike that you can use to commute, you know, not big long distances, but, you know, shorter commutes or around town or doing this or doing that and running errands, you know, the, the uh, BMW uh, G310GS is, is a pretty cool motorcycle. Is it the same motor as in the, the street uh, version of the bike? Yes. Uh, I haven't been able to determine if it's tuned the same way. It may be. Uh, the street version is a little bit lighter, so it's going to play out a little differently, and it's, it's shorter, so there's a little bit less wind resistance. So, you know, even if you have the same motor in the two different chassis, it's going to be, you know, it's got a 17-inch front wheel. Everything kind of works differently. You know, this bike, I don't want to say it's underpowered, but I'll just say it's it's a bit, it, it feels like, you know, you kind of, a lot of times you say, man, I wish this was a 400, you know, like they could just bore it out a bit. And a 400 would be really nice, you know, but for whatever reason, that 310, you know, is the sweet spot. I mean, KTM, they, their version of this is a, you know, their adventure is a 390. Kawasaki's is 300 twin. Honda has the 300, CRF 300L rally. So, you know, most of the most of the bikes in this category are on in the 300 cc range, and the KTM is way faster. I mean, no doubt about it. The KTM 390 
walks away from this bike. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of a different, you know, KTM is ready to race. It's a much more aggressive little bike. And this is a much more, you know, this is a friendlier, softer seat, uh, just kind of more, more street oriented than, than the KTM. And the KTM would, is a good one, you know, for, again, for, I mean, it's, it's still a long way from their, their, their dual sport bikes, especially KTM, because they have their dual sport bikes are basically their off-road bikes with just, you know, EPA legal motors. So, uh, you know, it's not a dual sport bike, but it's certainly more, far, far more than a street bike. And uh, it gets a job done in a, in a lot of fun ways. And uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was, it's good. Yeah. Does it come with any, uh, can you buy accessories for it? I mean, like bags or, you know, sort of luggage, if you do feel like, I mean, it's an adventure bike. So does it come with any kind of optional luggage? Or? There's nowhere to mount luggage you know, you know, that are, is built in like a lot, you know, you have on the bigger bikes. Okay. Uh, it does, you know, it does seat too. There are passenger pegs and enough room for the seat. I mean, you start loading it down, you're really loaded down, you know, so. Right. Uh, yeah, if you just would put soft bags from somebody like, you know, Tourmaster or whoever <clears throat> on it, and that, and that would be fine. Um, I, I haven't checked, but I'm sure BMW has soft bags that'll, that you can throw over, you know, mount on there somehow. It has a really nice rack. As, as I joined at the very beginning of, this, of the story here, the rack is quite extravagant. You probably put a top box on, you know, it, it looks like it's designed for a top box. And so that would be kind of the major thing, which kind of makes sense. Right. So if you have a side back and you fall over, you break them on the top box is much less likely to have a problem. Should you, you know, tip over the bike, but the front, I mean, the styling of the bike's great. You know, it's, it's really, really good. It looks really cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's got the beak, it's got that little, you know, cowling over the headlight and uh, they, they did a really great job with it. And the 40 years GS graphics, yellow graphics, it looks, it looks good. The bike, bike looks really legit. And so, and, and again, you're not, you're not riding around and everybody's looking at you like, oh, this guy's on a little tiny bike. Looks like you're on a, you know, an average person wouldn't be tell, able to tell this, to tell the difference between this and an 850 GS really, you know, at a, at a glance right even though the 850gs is, is much bigger bike i mean if they saw the two next to each other they would tell but if they see him just sitting there you know see, just see you on it you know zipping between traffic they're like oh that's a cool bike yeah yeah i thought that when i saw it <clears throat> it definitely looks legit i would say okay excellent it sounds like you like you really quite enjoyed it you think it's good value for money oh yeah absolutely you know a cool deal i mean you know you get that bmw cred having that the logo on there so that when you come upon parties people will be cheering for you and like your authentic motorcycle that you got there <laughs> and uh you know if it was some no-name brand people would have just been oh there's some guy on a cheap motorcycle but because it's got that bmw logo on it they're like oh that's a cool bike and uh you know bmw did the design which makes a big difference you know where it's made isn't as critical really as who designed it as long as the people who design it have some sort of sway over the quality control which bmw does the bike you know shifts fine the clutch works good it's a it's a slip and assist design clutch you know it didn't it doesn't have anything like a quick shifter you know it's, it's an inexpensive motorcycle but uh you know like i said the clutch is good the the uh brakes are good you know it's got 
you know, single disc, but that's plenty for what you're doing. You know, you, anything more than that would be over, you know, overworking the bike really. So you, you wouldn't want to have more than that. And, uh, just, you know, the suspension is not adjustable except for rear spring preload. So, you know, you're not getting a lot of, you know, you don't, but you don't, people who are buying a motorcycle like this, you don't want them adjusting this, you know, the damping, they, they were probably going to make it worse, not better. So in the engineers at BMW know what they're doing and the suspension on it works completely fine. There's, you know, there's no reason to be, you know, messing with it really. If, if you're exceeding the capabilities, let's say off-road of that suspension, you need to buy a different bike. You know, it's not about taking this bike and making more out of it, but it'd be about, okay, time to upgrade you know oh and yeah the front disc is a 300 millimeter disc so it's you know it's funny it looks a little small because it's on a 19 inch wheel but you know a 300 disc with a four, you know four piston real mountain caliper is you know the real deal yeah so it's it's a it's a super versatile motorcycle with you know be high speeds being its one weakness which is what you would expect from a th you know 310 adventure bike but anything if you're not going much over 60 most of the time you, this bike's kicking butt for you it's doing it's doing everything really easily really fun and really efficiently and uh you know that's that's always true of any motorcycle you buy it's about getting the right bike for what you do not saying well here's what i do and i'm going to make this bike work for it it's about okay this is these are my parameters what's the best bike for me and for somebody who's an urban rider who has access let's say dirt roads or just wants to have that look of adventure bike riding or it goes on like I have the access, you know, the map, the hilly roads that are narrow and stuff. It's just easier on an adventure bike than it is on a regular street bike to, to ride around and turn around. And you know, it's got more steering lock and it's just great for getting around town. And so it's, that's, that's your bike. You, know, you can spend 6,000 on a scooter. And so if you can't shift, of course, you know, you want the under seat storage space. Yeah. The scooter is the way to go. But if you're just trying to get around and you want to get around in a cooler way than maybe some uh, you know other two-wheel vehicles, the uh, BMW G310GS is a, a pretty good way to go. Okay, sounds good. All right. Well, hey, thank you. I enjoyed hearing uh, hearing your thoughts on it. Sounds like a sounds like a nice little bike. My my, my little stories. <laughs> yeah, it, it's actually a bit insulting to call it a little bike. I, I really don't mean that. I mean it sounds like. A nice motorcycle. Yes, it's sure. It's more of an more of an entry level, but it sounds like a like a legit, you know, decent motorcycle. It's a small displacement motor in a full size motorcycle. Yeah. So it it has you know it's a legitimately sized motorcycle. It's not like you're on a little pickup. Right. You could easily slot a six hundred in there. The chassis wouldn't be overworked. You know, it's it's the the chassis has plenty of room for additional power. The limiting factor riding the GS, the 310 GS, is always the motor, not not the chassis. It sounds like a really, really great motorcycle. Sounds good value for money. Sounds, sounds good. Absolutely. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. 
the YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully-fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine, inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. In this second segment, Neil Bailey and Kieran Ridley have returned from the Ukraine to Paris, where Kieran is based. Kieran is an award-winning photojournalist, and as an accomplished documentarian, he has covered stories as diverse as drug smuggling around the Mexico border, to the devastation of the Australian bushfires, to the tragedy of the Mediterranean migration crisis. Neil and Kieran reminisce about their motorcycle adventure in the Ukraine and their observations and experiences with the incredibly resilient people of Ukraine who have been put through such brutal hardship. Kieran, pick it up for us the day we got to Munich to pick our bikes up and what an interesting experience that was. Yeah, it was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really fun. Like um, uh, going to the BMW center in in uh, Munich was really different, actually, from where it, it was just one of those surreal experiences that we you rock up and and this nice German lady, you know, is, is very very formal and just very straight to the point, picks up and, and literally you we announced ourselves and she made us sign a piece of paper, looked at our licenses, and then just. I'd go through the building, go straight through the next set of doors, go left, and there you are. There was no, no, fanfare or fuss or anything. And we found ourselves like literally wandering through this building completely unaccompanied. Get to this great garage full of these amazing BMWs, you know. And then we there no motorbikes, so we kind of find our way to the, like the annex, which is the motorcycle wing and you know and all these you know new bikes and find ours and it's literally like here, here are the keys off you go you know so yeah that was a really interesting start i think to the journey you know? what i thought was so weird was she didn't say very much at all she yeah. pops to this there's like a, a wall of little closets yeah and she opened a door and brought out the paperwork yeah and just handed it to us and off we went and we had rolled into that room and obviously all our gear was in bags so yeah. we had to we just just exploded everything onto the floor to figure out how to put on the bikes. Yeah. I, mean, I think it was funny because well, the garage was well, like 300 square meters, something like that. It was a big, you know, like almost like three times the size of my apartment. They've got, you know, and I don't know, half a dozen bikes, eight bikes there. And we literally just completely unpacked and we virtually took up the entire space. You mm -hmm. know, and, and, but they were completely cool with us, these two scruffy English blokes. You know, completely just reorganizing our, our bags, spreading our chaos everywhere, and, and packing the bag. And we were there for like a couple of hours. They couldn't be more helpful. No, the fellow Marcel, I think his name was, he came out and bought some extra straps. Yeah. 
yeah and, and yeah and ba and and you know more bags and everything like that they were just great you know and and <laughs> i think the the lady at the reception she was just very um very process orientated but i think thought that we were kind of a bit chaotic with it <laughs> well i mean to be quite honest i mean we had yeah, obviously we put our riding gear on left our bags there but you know the the vests the bulletproof vests are really big and heavy and the helmets and yeah and so it, you got your camera gear you got your all your gear all the video gear all the press stuff i mean there's a lot of stuff to pack on those bikes and yeah and a lot lot to think about too because we you know we're a we're worried that the, the the jackets the the, the vests and the helmets are really heavy weights mm. you know they're just dead weight they're the they're the highest grade plates obviously yeah, for what so shrapnel and yeah they're level four so so they will withstand um uh art, so, some um artillery uh different um firearms if that makes sense at close range and at, at, at further back as well so snipers bullets allegedly so um, i have never tested it so i don't know but but yeah apparently the but they're the most sensible ones but the trouble with it um it comes weight as well you know they're really yeah. really heavy and, and then i have my big combat lifesaver pack with all the tourniquets and splints and mm. stuff so we did have quite yeah. a bit of crap but and then and then camera gear too don't forget because you know i wanted to make sure that i had my cameras accessible that they yeah. weren't kind of buried somewhere that mm -hmm. you, know, you could literally just pull up and and, and shoot so we had all that to figure out. Laptops, charging systems, medical kits. Yeah, there was a lot. Yeah, and to keep dry too. That's the other thing, yeah. you know, uh, to make sure. I've got to say, though, the you know, nice thing about the GS850 Adventure, the big bags, um, we both had top bags. Mm. Initially, when I got on, I was like, oh, my goodness, the front end felt so light. I'm like, I, I had to have a reorg and a repack the mm. second night. But once we got going... Um, I found the GS. I, I I had a different seat. You just always found it a little bit tall, a little bit top heavy. But we did have a ton of crap on it. Yeah, they were they were quite weighty with with everything on. But yeah. um, I think I was quite lucky because I had the lower seat. You mm. had the the higher seat. You know. But, but it was interesting because when we left, again to no fanfare, it was like oh here's the bike, here's the keys, get lost. You know, that really was close to the. It, as, even though this is the start of the journey, it was close to three months' work from when we originally decided that we were going to go into Ukraine. You were in Ukraine and called yeah. me on that old Chinese bike. You know, that was the catalyst to start the journey, which, yeah. you know, it's quite involved. You don't yeah. just jump on a BMW motorcycle and ride into a war zone. Press passes, bulletproof vests, approvals, timing, money. Yeah, and, and also being smart about it, knowing the environment that, that you're in and, and the fact is you, you want to be safe in it and you need to pick the right time, the right places and, and not do anything dumb, if that makes sense, you know, because you are more vulnerable on a motorbike. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and, it, and it, it these things take a while, then, you know, I got COVID, you got COVID, you know, um, yeah. But everything I got a respiratory infection. You have seven-month-old twins. I mean, you got yanked back to yeah. you got yanked back to Ukraine in the middle of the preparations um, on that Daily Mail project. Yeah, yeah. No, so I had an assignment, which was you know, it's work, and and um, yeah. But I ended up catching COVID on it, which didn't help very much, <laughs> and so that that put everything back. But that you know, everything happens for a reason, though, and it you know our timing. For, for this trip couldn't have come better you know that actually it was at the right time mm. 
um, so yeah it, it but it, it has been uh, logistically a lot of planning yeah. right and it was really interesting because you know nice hotel in Munich and then obviously for a couple of days I mean we had to roll across Germany we had to go across Czech and across Poland to get into Ukraine yeah. um, a lot of nice little ditties along the way we ran into Jana and the, the yeah. photographer who had just come out of Ukraine in, in Prague yeah had a lunch with her yeah it was great to see Jana she looked well mm. and she's yeah an ama amazing woman I was a little unsettled um, because Jana is a, a veteran of you know, war correspondence and she's done a lot of really, really crazy stuff with chasing ISIS out of Mosul in Iraq and I've seen her documentary and I mean that lady is fearless and she's been really in some incredible situations and she, when she was just telling us at lunch, it is nuts, you know, the shelling, the, just the, the inconsistency the imp it's impossible to know where to be you know I was like I just remember sitting at lunch thinking God, what are we getting ourselves into here not that we would be that close to it mm. um, so these were moments because on the other hand you're in Prague you know, we pulled into Prague the night before it's beautiful we're taking pictures on the river I and mean, we were like tourists mm. and then the next morning you're sitting there with this dread in your gut like oh what are we getting into here yeah, it was interesting. To, I mean, obviously, Jana was really, really far east, you know, mm. and she was there for a long time as well. Um, I think she's been in three times, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, she's had three times. Mm. Then your sketchy moment was riding out of Prague on, in the rain on the cobblestones. <laughs> yeah, I was not looking forward to that. Yeah, because literally, it was bizarre. We had it was a lovely morning, wasn't it? It was a lovely, mm. sort of like sun kissed morning, and then as we were finishing. With Yana, the sort of the heavens opened, and it's like all these, the cobbles and the tram lines as well, you know, like the, yeah, and the because the bikes were big and heavy, so, mm. yeah. So but yeah, but I think that really set the tone for a lot of the trip because you know a couple of days later, we're sort of a hundred kilometers from the Ukrainian border, in Poland, and suddenly, you know two things the sun was low the fields were so beautiful and you're just looking at this golden landscape you're on this silky smooth piece of highway mm. and you realize oh there's no cars you know yeah we're alone and you're like oh that's because we're close to ukraine yeah and again so you have this juxtaposition of on the one hand, there's beautiful smooth road, you're riding with your mate, you're on mm. these beautiful BMWs, everything's absolutely beautiful. Oh, there's a reason. <laughs> well, it would be like the perfect, you know, summer's evening ride. Right. It was just like the, the, the road surface was absolutely like super smooth, wasn't mm. it? You know, mm. it was just, the sun was just at that angle, you know, countryside was green and fresh and it was beautiful zero traffic like we didn't see in either direction like a car for like 5k something like that on a on this dual carriageway it was yeah but I think that was a highlight for me that the journey the journey into Ukraine was great actually you know, mm. it was um it was well I mean Europe the roads are so clean the drivers are so respectful the gas stations and garages are so clean well stocked I mean you know I don't mean to be rude about it you know, the country that I live in, but you know, the fucking standard of gas stations and service and urinals and it's just like, it's so rough. Mm. 
and then everywhere in Europe is so clean and orderly and the driving you know the respectfulness of people I mean you don't feel threatened on a motorcycle yeah. you know they're not undertaking I mean they're not tailgating they're not flipping you off or changing lanes I mean it really and also when, when you're at a standstill they really part you know so they leave a gap in the middle so you can you can run oh every time we came into a traffic jam I mean and they they physically you will see them seeing us coming and moving their cars out of the way yeah. or if you're on a two-lane road the person in front even big trucks they will all try and get on the shoulder to let anybody by and everybody flashes each other with a thank you yeah, yeah. it's really really different I mean it's it's a and the calmness to the driving mm. yeah which makes the motorcycle ride so enjoyable but then that juxtaposition of there's nothing on the road well, of course we're heading to Ukraine but yeah and then you start to hit the line of trucks uh, yeah. yeah which was what four or five kilometers yeah at least you know and then and then the line of cars as well after the trucks the trucks the trucks were really really quite far back mm, mm. then we hit the, the 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 cars and then we we found ourselves to the front of the queue in the were we in the diplomatic line or something? Yeah, we ended up in the diplomatic line. <laughs> I've never been bitched at by so many Polish police before. No, but but then, you know, we were there for... And we're talking to, to you know, some of the people who've been waiting. They've been waiting for three days mm. to cross in, in the car, not these not truck drivers. And so, yeah, I think that was a, that was a concern, especially when that the, the Polish border guards started to try to move us on they turned everybody in that queue back they wanted us to go to the back of the car which is about four kilometers down the road and, yeah and three and to three five days. I see one guy had been there five days I've yeah. got him on video yeah he was, but, he, was but, he was one of the ones trying to get a car in yeah not just a traveler yeah but that I mean you know but they'd been there for so but they were just so the people that we met there were just lovely really warm welcoming you know, really intrigued by what we were doing you know, and I think really that really nice. that really set a tone I think for Ukraine because the Ukrainians were trying to get back in and Petro was our sort of a savior of the thing yeah. and as much crap as the Polish border guards were giving us mm. these Ukrainian people that had been in line for longest time mm. jumped in stepped up moved everybody apart mm. to let us get our bikes in at the front of the queue yeah because the Polish, the one guy who actually spoke English, you finally said, "Well, look, if you can, if you can get in the queue, you can stay." Yeah, thinking that no one's going to let us in the queue, and yeah. they, the girls in the car backed up, the car in front went forward. Petra waved us in. The truck driver moved over, and suddenly we're at the front of the line, and we're we're across the border. Yeah, which was yeah. amazing. I mean, can you imagine? You've been sitting there for days, and a couple of clowns show up on motorcycles. And, oh, come on in, mate! I can't imagine that happening in the UK. I have to say, you know, <laughs> I think everybody would be bitching and complaining, you know, and it's like, you know, you know, what are you up to? The, you know, like oh, we want a BMW. We, we want like a three days, but they, they weren't like that at all. We want a BMW press enter during the, the summer solstice, and the cars were all locked down the highway, and we were lane splitting. Someone pulled a gun because a couple of bikes were going by because they couldn't get by. Yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, it was it was crazy, but I think that set a really good tone that people were positive about what we were doing and that was important to me mm -hmm. you know but I, I mean i was slightly anxious about the border just in terms of taking the, the bikes over making sure we had all the right documentation and everything like that but i think once we got in um that 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 was that ride from the border through to lviv was just amazing 
you know and just as soon it seemed everything changed and just it was the sun i think we there was that sense of relief that we we everything was cool we got in um in fairly decent time and then it was just a beautiful ride through through these pine forests and just you, you had all these different smells as well you know. I smell jasmine or night blooming jasmine, pine, grass, smoke, food. Yeah, but it was really fresh. Mm. Really, yeah, it was just and it was great sunset. It was a great ride, no no stress. Well, again, it was a huge juxtaposition for me because I'm suddenly like, okay, we're, we're riding into a war zone, and we're on this beautiful piece of road. Not long after sunset, and we're just you know. Those BMWs are sort of 80, 90 kilometers an hour, just silky smooth, warm air, beautiful smells, going through little towns. Like, just absolutely what, you know, I think because media shows you this very narrow band snapshot of massive destruction, heartache, and pain constantly. Mm. You don't realize Ukraine's a huge country with lots of other things in there. Yeah. And for me, it was like, Oh wow, it's beautiful here. Wow, it's calm. Oh, there's beautiful smells. Yeah. It was very interesting. Yeah, for me it was interesting as well because the last time I had ridden that road was back in you know uh, February and March when I was photographing the the refugees. And there was about what about a thirty kilometer backup at that point? Yeah, there were at times there was like a thirty kilometer queue, you know. And I was, it was cold. It was at least around zero. Didn't get much much above zero. Yeah, and, and last time was on, on my battered old um, Chinese um, motorbike that started the whole the whole journey, our whole journey off. Really. Mm, mm. You know, if it was if it wasn't for that bike, then I wouldn't have called you to ask you why the bike was behaving in such a horrible way. And um, if you hadn't called, yeah, if we hadn't spoken about, it, I wouldn't. I mean, I didn't even know you were in Ukraine. I was yeah. sitting there watching the war from home, wondering what to do. And it just was quite a natural yeah. that you call, right, let's go. Yeah, no, it was great. It's, and um, yeah, it was nice to, nice to ride a decent bike. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was crazy was we, you know, obviously Lviv is in Western Ukraine. It's a long way away from the front line. They do get strikes, they have been hit. Mm. It is, there is an element of um, you know, fear, obviously, in people that any moment something can happen there but it is relatively safe I suppose compared to a lot of places inside Ukraine and we got in quite late at night after curfew which was really weird because suddenly we're coming into town driving down these wild cobbled streets and beautiful architecture and there's nothing on the road because it's after curfew and mm. back to your favorite hotel <laughs> yeah second home but no, it was it was beautiful, and, and um, that ride was really special. We got in quite quite late after curfew, but we had um, also sort of we had two eyes on really the um, the next day, where we had we were going to go down to the the largest coal mine in in Western Ukraine, um, which I think was an amazing opportunity, really, and one that we couldn't when we knew that it was it. That that possibility was 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 going to happen. That we couldn't, you know, we couldn't pass it by. So it was a really very quick stop at the hotel, a couple of hours sleep, and then we were up and out and on on our bikes again about half six. I think. We yeah. Andre and started heading 
heading up uh, up towards the coal mine. Yeah, and, and you know, maybe you know, people listening in, um, maybe we weren't didn't sort of clarify too much at the beginning of the cast. You know, that, you know one of your focuses obviously was to tell stories. Um, that's what you do is you take it. You know, you'll get assigned things, and one of so the really the first assignment was this 1970s era Soviet coal mine because mm. in for Ukrainians, the, there's the energy front, there's the war front, but there's the energy front because so many of the coal mines are in Donbass, mm. taken over by the Russians or inoperable. Mm. So the workers, they have a real sense of we are providing energy for Ukraine. Yeah. So it was an important story. It was the first big story we went. And of course, we two or three hours sleep and we're on the bikes and gone again immediately. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's, well, for me personally, it was a really important story. I, I'd found out about this place on my previous trip back in um, uh, May when we drove through the city and um, I was talking to, to our fixer about it, you know, what it what it was and he explained that it was the largest coal mine in, in western Ukraine and at that point, you know, there's a lot of discussion about um, obviously what's happening in the east in Donbass and then also in terms of um, you know, sort of the agricultural side of things, and and it, we are talking to him. It was very clear that the importance of this uh, this coal mine in terms of the, what it was, the the role it was playing in in this in the way that a lot of Ukraine's coal producing area was now either, like you said, occupied or um, or not functioning because you know it's literally in in the right at the front and you know so that was quite high on my list of, of stories that I wanted to pursue and, and thankfully um, our fixer managed to, to get us access which was great you know but literally right you know three hours late, later we were we were heading down this this Soviet era mine which just it was for me visually it was amazing it was really really interesting I mean yes it being transported back to 1977, nothing in that mine had changed. I mean, the way that the ladies process us, mm -hmm. writing into ledger books, hand, you know, it, yeah, it was, to go back into the 70s was phenomenal. I don't know that I was particularly happy about going back to the 70s in the elevator going <laughs> 1,500 feet down into a but coal it, No, mine. it was really, I, I just, I find it really interesting. It was, it was yeah, very, very interesting experience. But like you said, it's like going back in time and, you know, definitely from doing similar ex experiences and assignments in the, you know, in, in Europe, you know, our health and safety briefing was if you, if you smell smoke, open this up, breathe into it and then breathe. If you manage to control your breathing, you might last two hours. If not, it's going to last you, you know, an hour, an hour and a quarter, and that was it. No. Well, the thing is, you, and the point that you missed was the safety briefing was conducted in Ukraine with some type of translation into English. So that's yeah. what we gained from the briefing. If you unscrewed this thing, you breathed into it. Yeah. And if you could chill out, you might last a couple of hours. Yeah. Yeah. So we had our headlamps. Um, I thought the most interesting thing, well, not because well, it was all interesting, but in the beginning was we had to go into these little rooms and these women had to help us dress. We had to put on like track suits. Then they came and wrapped our feet in towels, didn't have socks. They gave us these little rubber Wellington boots. Yeah. 
Then we put over our over felt coats mm. with these big belts. Well, the big belts were to hold battery packs for the headlights and, you know, it was just the oddest thing. Yeah, it was it was slightly surreal experience. <laughs> yeah. it? But, but, but amazing, you know, and, and how often do you get that opportunity? Well, I don't, yeah, and, you know, the... Igor, who took us down there, is actually the director of the mine. He's the, you know, the head honcho. Um, you know, he's normally in charge of about 2,000 employees non-wartime. I think they were down to about 1,000, 1,100 when we were there. A lot, a lot of them at the front line, and things are a little different. And he actually was with us the whole time. And um, very proud of the mine. And you could definitely see there's a real family, all the women that worked at the headlight checkout, the gas mask checkout, the different things. You can see people that's been there forever and nothing's changed. Mm. But a really steely sense of purpose too. You know, they were definitely, they were very conscious of their role. Yes. You know, um, yeah. Right, that this is part of the war effort. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And a key a key part in, in the keeping the energy production going. What was... Um, for me, it was like when we got down there, initially you went into sort of a, a big tunnel with bricks and it was painted and there was lights along the wall. And in my imagination of going to a coal mine, I thought that that's what all the tunnels would be like. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly we turn right into this one tunnel, there's no lights. And we're walking on these little planks with these rusty supports and crap hanging off the ceiling. Yeah. And there were like chains on the floor, rusty pieces of metal. Yeah, it, it, and a complete pitch black. Yeah, total darkness. And that sometimes you're ankle deep in mm. water walking on these planks that mm. are now submersed. Yeah. And it was really interesting because it was a couple of times you would go off, you would stop to make a portrait or somehow, and I would get separate. There yeah. were times I got separated, obviously yeah. going in the same direction, and it's completely pitch black and you can see nothing but what's in your headlight. But also the coal dust. It feels, it, the nearest thing is a bit like diving. Uh, yeah, and, you know, in like murky water, because you've got it's kind of like you can see all these kind of particles. It's yeah. sort of like it's not a clear vision. It's 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 really quite cloudy. You know, and then you come across these guys. They're working in their their whole lives, six-hour yeah. shifts down underground, and they're building train tracks. They're running machines, and it's pitch blackness. Mm. Just their headlights. And they're yeah. so calm and stoic, and like I guess that's just life, you know. Yeah, but they've all got all got stories to tell as well. Yeah, you know, like you know, one of that one guy that we met who had, who was retired, but he'd come back to work. He was he was originally from Donbass, and and uh, at the start of the war, um, he'd actually he actually moved from Donbass to be in Western Ukraine, and had been you know living there for the last six years I think mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. uh, had retired and now you know because of the war a lot of the other workers were, were, were in the army now you come back to work and, 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 and was working and then you find others who are like second generation third generation coal miners really interesting guys yeah and you know sadly 17 deaths in the Lviv region from the front line, five from that particular mine, and a lot of guys at the front line still. Um, yeah, I think you could you could do a whole podcast just on that day. I mean, it really was phenomenal. But what was interesting for me, 
when we did get out of there, the temperature had come up. It was one of the hottest days, and we got taken off to a speedway garage, and the speedway track, which had been in existence since 1962, had hosted world championship rounds. A lot of Polish riders used to go there, because obviously speedway's huge in Poland and England, and had mm. been really big in Ukraine. And these guys are still trying to keep something going during the war. That was that was very interesting. That was amazing, you know, and and just to hear the the passion they had for the sport, and but to see that garage as well, because that was, it was the road surface was just horrendous, and we got taken to this kind of old lock up workshops, at the back of beyond basically, mm, mm. but and it was so hot hot that the asphalt was melting. We couldn't put the bikes on the stands because it literally oh, just punched road. right through the hat, yeah. And, but anyway, and, and we go into this guy's, he opens these doors and it's like opening into Narnia. I mean, it was so clinical and clean. He had the race suits, he had his engines, the, the bike was, you know, center stage. Yeah, it was, and so And phenomenal piece of kit. I mean, chrome molly frame, you know, lock-up clutches. I mean, everything really, and he was saying, oh, this bit came from Czechoslovakia, this bit. I mean, beautiful componentry. I mean, like you'd see the you know, race event anywhere in the States or in Europe. I mean, really, really top quality stuff. Yeah, and, and but so passionate too. Because mm. you know, it was his son who was the racer. Son who was racing, yeah. He gives catalogs and photographs and gives mm. a good interview. Wow. And then they took us to the track and we got to go right around the speedway track on our GSs, which... <laughs> <laughs> on road tires. Road tires, yeah, it wasn't the best, but it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know... I don't know, I think it really set the tone for the, the trip. I mean, how welcoming people were, how willing they were to tell us our story, how grateful we they were that we're here. Mm. Oh, sorry, we're not in Ukraine now, but how grateful that we were there. Essentially, with a window of this story for the world. Mm. And I think that stayed with us the whole trip. Absolutely. Yeah, everybody was really... Um very welcoming and yeah I think they really they really wanted um, they really want the world to know what's happening there mm. yeah. yeah it was um, you know it's funny because we launched into the, the next day um, we had that stunning ride out into the countryside to go to a whole, an equine therapy center mm. and there was no time to think. I mean, we'd come in so late from the speedway in the mine, so whipped, crashed out, got up, got going, and suddenly we're out in one of the most beautiful valleys I can remember being in on this lovely rural country road. I mean, yeah, with Ukraine all, is beautiful. Oh, it was, yeah. The countryside and the landscape is just amazing. Mm. Yeah, it's so, so beautiful. And um, that we're following this, following this Russian lady um, yeah. on a little Chinese motorcycle to an equine therapy center. Yeah, a really interesting story. You know, Sasha had, a, you know, she had this great story about her husband was a, um, well, he's, he was a veteran, but he's re-enlisted. Um, and she'd started working. She'd always been, had horses all, all her life. And mm. she'd started to see the difference that in her husband and With her his PTSD husband, from the front. From, yeah. yeah. And, and the difference it made in terms of calming his PTSD, in terms of the, the, the time that he spent with the horses. and So he, she started working with veterans to help. And um, yeah, she was making a huge difference in terms of the way that, that it helped their PTSD, helped their recovery. On that day we met, 
you know, just incredible young men or, or you know, amputees um, who had lost either their arms or their legs. You know, as recently as June, Daniel lost his leg in June. Four months. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, four weeks. Four um, weeks. Yeah. Before and. Um, you could you could see actually the difference before you know when they arrived to when they left and that that you just in just in one day you know or not even a day just a few hours you know the difference that that you know that the effect that it had on them you know but she was doing amazing work and in you know, the horses themselves were incredible as well they seemed to somehow and they kind of got it well, well they're refugees the horses yeah. have been rescued from the war yeah from, I mean, from the east yeah from yeah. the east. 2016 yeah. around that time 2014 2016 mm. no. it was very you know you're suddenly riding through a beautiful valley you see these beautiful horses and the next thing you know cars arrive and they unload all these young men with missing limbs mm. and it is a bit shocking initially and like you said Daniel Daniel was four weeks from being blown up and then of course watching they like you said their transition mm. from being stressed to getting on a horse not knowing what to do to you know an hour or two later they're coming back from a little ride in the country and you see their whole demeanor is so different yeah not being guided completely unaided yeah riding alone and especially for a couple of lads with one arm i mean mm. you know you're holding the reins with your one arm or you're trying to balance with one leg and sahi the the man who is the psychologist at the rehab, big rehab center that has helped Sasha put this program together, he's uh, paralyzed from the waist down. And after lunch, we got to sit with the veterans and hear these stories. And unbelievable story of him, how he was shot down in a helicopter and how he is, like, you almost feel like you're listening to the script for a movie when these men are telling you what they went through. I mean, really, it's and and the thing is, it's not just one story. They they all have stories like that. I mean, just I mean, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but you know, just incredible courage and bravery and you know hardship and just such. I mean, yeah, it it um, yeah, be, beyond Hollywood, you know, those stories were just yeah, like Antonelli, young man, probably thirty, a battalion commander, had been in Mariupol since February. 27th I think he was early into Mariupol and he was on the other side of the Azov steel plant so he wasn't actually in the plant and he and a group of his um, battalion had broken out of Mariupol and he took a bullet in the arm as they were leaving so he shot in the arm they tourniquet the arm to stop him bleeding out and for the next eight days, he led his crew 230 kilometers across often occupied territory in yeah. fairly crappy weather. They said whenever they saw the sun, they were just upset that it didn't give any heat. Yeah. And they're just literally traveling at night, night vision goggles. I mean, they said one time they went to sleep and woke up sort of literally 50 yards in some Russian positions. They didn't even realize where they were asleep. Yeah. And they even had to pretend they were Russian soldiers. I think they were initially in the were they initially in the Donetsk region, and they went up to Chensal Vista, or, or um, but they were definitely in a more Russian um, oriented yeah, no, part. Yeah, I, it, it was really just because he the way that the the Russians had 
encircled Maripol at that time. Mm. They he they needed to cross through two two lines essentially. Yes. Yeah, they had to get out of the Russian zone and into the Ukrainian zone. Yeah, and, and his story is just incredible. I mean, you know, just huge huge bravery. And sadly, because of the way you know, perhaps you know he he led his men, you know, not only to safety but with you know a gunshot wound in his leg in his arm yeah that was getting more and more infected and was, his arm was dying yeah, yeah. because of the, because of the tourniquet mm -hmm. you know and just little you know he was having to smoke to be able to to you know to cut away the smell from his arm and like you said that you know the it was the the weather was not kind you know it was the the conditions were particularly rough and yeah through eight days 230 kilometers yeah because they came out of the Donetsk region and then they went to Zaporizhia and yeah. um, it was a little safer for them then yeah once once they once they reached sort of safer ground mm. but yeah I mean just incredible you know hugely brave guy. what was interesting also um, was that he had video obviously he wouldn't share it with us and he doesn't want his last name or too many details because some of his uh, comrades have been captured. They're in captivity. And that was a big part of a lot of the stories that we came across. Like, for instance, with the coal mine, I mean, they didn't want us to give any locations or any regions mm. because, you know, the pressure is always on. I think, and there's that nervousness as well. Mm. That they can always, um, and you know, it, it's it's I guess it's, you know it's a bit similar to the Second World War, isn't it? It's kind of like loose lips, you know. They're very very Same ships, yeah. yeah, very conscious of that, and um, you know, and you have to respect that. So that was an incredible day. You know, the following morning was one of those you know up and down things where we actually went to the main rehab center, and even the relationships that we developed with Daniel and Anatoly, and it was very difficult and they didn't want to speak so much and I think maybe they didn't want to be singled out because I mean I have never seen so many young men with missing limbs I mean it was just like if you thought that being at the horse thing with seven amputees was mm. overwhelming just this whole building full of yeah I think to give people some kind of perspective it's like a, a you know a hotel you know yeah like a, four floors with all the different rooms and every room had amputees and Every therapy center had amputees. The general with no legs, the people with no arms. I mean, it was just yeah. But but they they the care that they were receiving was was really good. You know? mm. um, yeah, I mean the doctor was a lovely young man and and you very about his business. So it was really interesting because we we I know for your perspective and and what the listeners won't know in this. I guess we can they can do a bit of research and we'll be putting stories out. As you, know, you you do very intense portraiture where you have to develop your environment with your subject and it was really you weren't able to really make that work inside the rehab place so there was a definite sense of frustration that we were quote unquote wasting our day because mm -hmm. we weren't getting what we felt we needed um, and I understand why now looking back and then we decided okay this isn't working we headed out into the country and we had a Amel, Amel, you know, a guy we were working with had dialed us in with an afternoon at a 16th century monastery. And then the switch just flicked again and everything changed into the most incredible way as mm. we got to the monastery. I mean, huge juxtaposition, you know. I mean, but yeah, the, the, and again, an incredible ride, you know, through. 
Beautiful and scenery, lovely roads. Yeah, and it's really interesting riding a motorbike as well. It's a very reflective time too, isn't it? You know, so you leave. Yeah, because we're not chatting. You're on your own in your helmet. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and we it was an hour and a half ride. You know, and yeah. you, you're kind of a little bit lost in your thoughts, thinking about the stories the young guys have told. You know, and, and just how impressive they are. Um, and then then you arrive at this 16th century monastery in just this incredible setting, and it's. It's suddenly transformed to a different place, time, and world. In a way that I can't, I don't know that I'll be able to explain the the serenity and tranquility. The, like, you came off the highway, you went on a more secondary road, went through some villages, went on an even more secondary road, mm. and the last thing up, well, it kind of reminded me of being out in the rural country in England, where you're sort of tickling through the villages, very mm. narrow roads, everything's opening up, yeah. and suddenly you come into this valley. Yeah. And there's the monastery, and it's absolutely beautiful, stunning. Mm. Is yeah, just yeah, Id idyllic, serene. This calmness about it, you know. Mm. You, know you know, pockets of people going about their their birds singing, yeah. and, and it was, yeah, just it was just beautiful, really. And and I think the other th the, what makes it really, you know, you go there, you get this impression, which is which is fine, but. The thing that really did make it beautiful, uh, without it again sounding like a cliche, was the people who were there. They genuinely were just in really, really, you know, amazingly, you know, really nice, beautiful people, calm, quiet, you know, and very, very engaged in what they were doing, and also really engaged in what we were doing as well, you know, and and you know, really just fascinating, you know, like the main, the abbot was a. Ukrainian national bench press bench champion. Press champion. Yeah. yeah, which is just like bizarre. You know? Yeah, yeah. With his own gym and and he was lovely. He's an amazing guy. Yeah. Beautiful church, beautiful grounds, and then you know, a dining room full of refugees. And while you were off shooting with Father McCurry, mm -hmm. I got to spend some really significant time with Paul, one of the refugees out of Kharkiv. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and which was the reason we went there. It wasn't just sort of like going to a, a random monastery, but yeah, we we didn't mention that the the, the monastery was housing refugees. Yeah, and that that was the the interesting part from my point of view. You know, from a storytelling point of view, um, was r really the work that they're doing, and um, and to have access for that, and to tell that side of the story, because obviously. Back at the beginning of the conflict, I'd done a lot of work with refugees and, and, and that, that side of the story. And it was really keen to kind of, you know, to keep that, pursue that, that side of the, of the war. Um, and yeah, and, and um, so we, we managed to, to have access and yeah, it was just, even like you said, when you, when you, the conversations we had with the people there was just, yeah, mind blowing. And a lot of children as well. I, um, you know, it's all it's like this investigation of these stories that we've been looking for. What to me came out of the monastery thing was, you know, obviously all this peace, this beauty, this tranquility. And I kind of had one of my real wobbler moments, I think, where the little girl came out, the mother was there with the little girl, and she saw Father McCurry and just if you want to think about what love looks like, the way she ran to him and hugged him, and he's such a beautiful man. I mean, reminds him a lot of Father Gio, I think, you know, my, my Canadian priest friend who 
inspired a lot of this stuff in the early days. I mean, just a generally beautiful man. And this little girl, and she turned around and gave me this smile, and it was so lovely and so expressive. And I shot some pictures of it. And then this is sudden moment thinking, a bomb could drop here any minute, deliberately, to end these children's lives. And that was really hard for, I had a few minutes there where I just, man, I went somewhere, you know? That was really hard. Like mm. seeing the beauty of this little girl, the tranquility of everything, the, the love, the peace, the camera, everything that was going on there was so amazing. And then to think that that could just be gone, yeah, I, 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 I definitely felt that one. Mm. But then you made everybody smile by riding your bike around the monastery. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, kids are kids; they're in the moment, and yeah. that's what we do, isn't it? You throw a bunch of kids on the bike and you ride around. Yeah. Everybody had a good time. It's cool. It had that head abbot on board. So that, that you know, yeah, he you was get, away with, get away <laughs> with it. get away with stuff. But what was really fascinating too was you, that I hadn't realized with Amel, uh, um, is he our fixer or what, how would you say? Yeah, I'd say he's a fixer. Yeah. You know, he's been working on a, a documentary about the monastery from the Second World War that has housed um, children, Jewish children that were escaping the Holocaust. Mm. And they had hidden them there and disguised them there and he's actually creating a documentary that this monastery you know what it did to save those children and how actually those three three boys all went on to have really significant lives and here we were sort of 80 years later the monks are doing exactly the same thing they're mm -hmm. hiding and housing refugees of war mm -hmm. and i didn't realize that until we spoke with amel and that was hugely powerful mm. you know this all of these layers, you know, like my conversation with Paul, the young man that was, you know, listening to them talk about being bombed in Kharkiv and how they would identify the sound of different missiles and different rockets and how they knew what they were. And, you know, you just see your emotions are all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know, you're trying to be calm, you're trying to listen, and then you just like, you know, you go from feeling so immensely sorry for people to immensely motivated by how incredibly brave they are. It's really it, it's hard to describe. I think also the contrast in terms of what they're saying and the environment that they're saying it in. You know, that you're in this incredibly tranquil spot, but they're talking about, you know, it's completely the polar opposite experience that they've had. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, um, it was definitely, I left there, you know, really, I think for me that was one of the more, you know, thought provoking times. Um, and yeah, it, again, a real, a really different experience, and one that probably you, you weren't anticipating. I think at the, at the beginning of the trip. So you know, we we got back into Lviv. Um, I guess the only, best way to describe the next couple of days really was housekeeping, downloading photographs, having some meetings with a mill, um, really sort of teeing up what we were going to do because you know we were, you know, I don't mean to make it sound like we were disorganized but I mean we were a little bit on the fly as to what we were going to do and you know so our plan developed that we would ride to Kiev um, so yeah a little bit of laundry a little bit of photo editing um, yeah and production really and planning you know mm. because also don't you know it's not um, things change you know, it's a very dynamic situation. Stor stories change, they evolve. Um, access as well comes and goes at, mm. different, at different times. So, Yeah, because, I mean, 
we have two different loads of press passes, obviously international press passes, then we have Ukrainian access, but then Omel would have to get his local access to certain areas. So there's sort of three levels of approval to get anywhere, which takes time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, um, and you know, and, and things in terms of safety, um, where the, uh, what was happening on the ground at any given time, you know, that, that everything dictates. Yeah. So it was a few days later, we, we pushed off to Kiev. Mm-hmm. Um, Andre, our fixer, um, he was loaded up to come with us. Beautiful character, um, ex-military. So, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about really to hear is how often you have to go through military checkpoints. Yeah. And obviously, having Andre up front in the car, they know he's a he's been a soldier. He has his credentials, and he can say, "Look, these British journalists mm. are with well, me." Yeah. Really smooths things through, doesn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think also speaking, you know, everything speaking the language. Um, as we said before, you know, if you have two two strangers who you know pretty expensive motorbikes mm. uh, with a load of camera gear uh, you know given the fact it is a war-torn country you know and there are it you know they're the the heightened security their heightened awareness as well um because you know there are you know russian spies obviously because they're gathering information in terms of targets and things like that so nat- nat- naturally you know quite suspicious um, rightfully so, you know, um, but it just it, j- it just makes everything a lot more a lot easier, you know, and and also he, he, Andre was a, a very good travelling companion as well. He, he was good to be good to be around. Well, I've and I've written a little bit about that on sort of Instagram posts if people have been following us at all. It's like I think he was such a welcome relief to the pressure valve, or he was such a relief as a pressure valve because being able to laugh, joke, and fuck with each other like a, you know just like a band of brothers, I think a little bit heightened, you know, like a little bit of nervous excitement, but I think it was such a great thing that we never were allowed to stay down and mm. dark for too long because we would get back together, you know, start fucking with each other and let it out mm. rather than let it bottle up and pile one on top of the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, whenever you're traveling with people, I think the dynamic between them is really important. And, and you know, we all, we all got on and we all laughed and joked and mm. ripped into one another. And yeah. Yeah. Know. Giving each other, I mean, he was constantly giving me shit for being old and yeah, fucking with me and giving me the finger. And it was really, you know, but do you know people like you if they're, you know. Yeah. If they're joking with you. Mm. Means, yeah. Because again, we got thrown into this, you know, emotional roller coaster that we had the most beautiful ride to Kiev. Mm. I mean, we stopped at castles, we went through fields of grain, we went through villages, you know, tourist attractions. You know, you, your mind is like, oh, they're at war, but life is going on. People are still visiting castles. People are still mowing their grass. And I would ride through seeing people painting things and cleaning things and cutting flowers, and women would be. You know. I, I think this is, you know, something for me that's really important is that when you talk to people about Ukraine, they have a certain vision in mind. Really, um, you don't realise the scale of the country. It's a huge country. It's like the size of France and Germany put together. Mm. You know, it, it's it's Europe's biggest country, and um, and the fact is that it is a, it is a war torn. But there are large areas of the of the country that, you know. Is isn't directly in you know on the front line, mm. 
but everybody's got their story everybody is affected in one way or another but it might not be directly in terms of like yeah um, missing a limb or a building blown up or shot or killed or whatever i mean it, it, it can be yeah, their families and, and and we'll find that later on when we go and talk about sort of like the the people that we met in the fields and the, and the fishing villages that you know that not directly affected by um, any strikes or anything like that but they've got they've got tales to tell in terms of the way that the war is affecting them and i think that's really important to tell is that you know it's not it's not quite as it's perceived but you know everybody is affected well talk us through you know because again the emotional roller coaster was getting set to um you know flip again because we were sort of almost this idyllic ride this photography this this countryside you know, you're spinning down the road in your beautiful BMW, you're laughing and joking with your mates. Um, and then suddenly we get into the outskirts of Kiev and it really, that first smell and bombed out buildings, it, it everything changes again. Yeah, I think I think the ride into Kiev was very memorable for different reasons. But yeah, I think it was the first, the first visual encounter that we had in terms of the fact that the, the country's really, really at war. Um, and that the, the the ride into Kiva, for for me it was, you know, it's essentially a straight road, just a lot with a, f a few hills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you start as you start to come out, you you will start to see, you know, malls that have been hit. You know, you start to see bus bus stations that are riddled with shrapnel, you know, uh, markings on on the buildings. And yeah, and it, it that that's where I think the sort of the visual nature of you are, you know, you're within a country that's, you know, at war in an area that's been recently attacked. Uh, you know, had you know, fighting. Um, yeah, that was I think that that was the first real visual marker really, and just also understanding it because the other strange thing is that that it there is a sort of random element to it, you know, that you'll see buildings gas stations completely destroyed and then across the way this seems to be a building that is completely pristine unaffected you know but then also sort of like you know people scurrying around life goes on you know just sort of return to normality really people waiting at bus stops but the bus stop is destroyed or you know got this debris and, and damage around it yeah it, it was interesting but then as with the time of the year the summer setting it was slightly idyllic, you know, in that sense. And then as you move closer into the city, the the highway is amazing. It's kind of reminds me a little bit of like San Francisco. You can see for so so far, but it starts to build up. And because it was dusk, you'd have the the, the glittering of the lights of the, of the oncoming traffic. And yeah, it was really 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 interesting ride actually. And then you, we pulled into to Kiev and then to our our apartments which was a real that was another experience in itself but yeah the, the ride was yeah i think our first taste of um you know um of, see, of seeing the you know the real impact the visual impact would that have been a soviet era building we were in yeah 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 that tiny little elevator and then there were one two one two we had four four sets of doors to get through to get to, and then the apartment door. So the, you had to get in the building. Yeah. Then we walked. get downstairs into the elevator. There was the one big door to go into the passageway, a second door to get into another passageway. Yeah, a third 
a third door to get into our individual apartment passageways then our apartment, apartment door. door yeah yeah that was really really strange yeah and of course fun. we're tired and whipped and i'm like what the fuck is this you know <laughs> and literally about three doors down is like one of the most expensive hotels in kiev and it's just like oh we're but, saving money here but, but no, I, was, I quite like my little apartment because we were there for a few days yeah i love mine it was like this little mezzanine thing with like a bed right at the at the top but yeah no it, it was cool and it, i think that was a real experience you know very, but you know even that you know we were sitting there sort of having a decompress and figuring out what to do when the the air raid sirens came on Mm. And I just remember sitting there, I videoed it out the window, and it's this beautiful, still, peaceful summer evening in this lovely European city, looking at the architecture and the fading light, and suddenly that gut feeling of that air raid siren goes off. Mm. And it, it's just flip-flop all the time. Mm. You know, one minute you're just in this idyllic environment, next minute, oh my God, where are we staying? You're all consumed with that, and then the next thing you're in full air raid mode. I just remember you saying, oh, bollocks, let's just go to sleep. I mean, if it's a direct hit, we won't know. And you know, it's like, you know, what are you going to do, right? Yeah, no, I, I think. And, and um, yeah, I think that's that's really just life in, in those kind of environments to a certain extent. I well, I think it's like Colin said, it's like life in wartime. Yeah, and also sort of, you know, without sounding flippant, you it, it it's like horses for courses. You know, you'd behave differently in different environments and, and things like that. But at, at that point, you know, I think it was a measured response. Mm. Go to mm. bed. Go to bed and go to sleep. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, I, I found that quite strange because in Lviv, you know, the first air raid strike, I'd gone downstairs and no one else had gone downstairs except a couple of people and, you know, disturbed my sleep and, you know, a couple more air raid sirens later and then you're in... Kiev and the sirens are going off and yeah I'm going to sleep you know well, I think because I sent you a message as well I think at some point and, and then, <laughs> yeah just so just go to sleep if you get a direct hit your gun anyway right well yeah I mean what I mean I didn't really fancy I you know don't really like the idea the building that we were in there was, didn't seem much sense in sitting in a basement to be honest with you if it's going to get hit then we're going to be trapped in the basement and probably a similar kind of outcome and you know proportionally to you know it's uh you'd have to be incredibly unlucky i think to get hit yeah so that was cool because we definitely dialed ourselves in for a few days in kiev mm. and um, we wanted to go to butcher to erp in hostomel mm. and uh, use kiev as our base yeah um, and, and again yeah the motorbike came into its own once again you know that we first we went to went to erpin which was really and, and met some really nice old old ladies yeah we stopped at a flower stall and one thing led to the other and the old lady took us back to her house and she was actually one of the first ladies to be to be bombed in urban yeah and um interesting sort of looking at the the way the tanks had left oh, the they were so heavy they left the tank tracks in the streets and you're in this rural little kitchen gardens there's you know ladies with you know, scarves on their heads and people some people had animals they all had gardens and there's tank tracks right down the thing and, and everywhere is shit blowing up mm. yeah they she was very lucky because they, they hit their out hit their outbuildings but she 
We hit their car yeah. and blew up their outbuildings and took out the front of the house, but they were in the other side of the house so they lived. Yeah. Which is Just not everybody's story. No, I mean, uh, it's, um, she was very lucky. But just, again, just tough, brave, you know, this inner strength, really. Not um, Nobody complained. There was no whining and complaining about it. Just, this is what happened. And they're cleaning up. Yeah. They're getting on with it. Yeah. Everywhere you went, there was the sound of hammers, weed whackers, yeah. saw, yeah. Yeah, electric saws, and people working on rebuilding yeah. the damage. Yeah, I think, which is you know very forward thinking and not sort of being stuck and yeah it, it, it's um and these people had been quote unquote for a period of time occupied by the russians i mean they had moved in i mean what struck me was how close they were to kiev like yeah. we were not i mean what 25 clicks at most yeah it's about that about 30 25 30 kilometers yeah yeah and it's it but it is i mean you don't realize how close the russians got to getting in there yeah but also what life was like for them as well when they were as well that I think um, <clears throat> that was particularly terrifying you know and um, yeah some some of the some of the stories and the tales that, that you hear from it um, pretty sobering mm. well we left Erpin heading for Butcher and we ran into one of our most serendipitous experiences where life took us on a journey because of motorcycles mm. so why don't we end here at part one we're an hour in mm -hmm. and uh, we'll pick up part two from running into Roman and the guys on the BMW because I think it's a great place to pick up perfect perfect